Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So Ecclesiastes is... So far we have seen a book about frustration. Certainly frustration about the vanity of life, which means not the meaninglessness of life necessarily, but the fleetinglessness of earthly pursuits and the shortness of life. In chapter 3, the preacher we saw was frustrated because of his time-bound limitations. But he could not see God's justice, and he does not know how to understand even his own death. And so we have a better view of things than the author of Ecclesiastes, because we live on the other side of the cross. We have the fullest revelation of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the things that he says and the frustrations that he has are very true. We saw that his time-bound limitations frustrate him. His seeing the oppression under the sun frustrates him. But the one thing that frustrates him perhaps the most is superficial worship. Read with me. Ecclesiastes 5, 1-7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. They don't know they're doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake, Why should God be angry with your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is a passage and a warning against superficial worship um, that could be described as maybe a worshiper going to church and going through the motions. Maybe this worshiper goes to the temple, but he does not go to the temple with a heart prepared for worship. Maybe this worshiper hears the reading of the law by the priests in the temple, but does not actually intend to conform his life to the words read to him. Maybe he prays many words and seems to be spiritual, but behind his words are really a carelessness. So here's the human problem. I think 
the human problem is to approach God in a way inappropriate to his transcendence and holiness. To approach God in a way that does not match or correspond fully to his transcendence and holiness. And I've seen this, and I'm sure you have seen this, in many, many congregations, there seems to be a nonchalant attitude when they're going to worship the Lord, as if they were just going to the supermarket. We should approach God, however, with reverence and honor when we come to worship the Lord. Now, here, most churches will assent to what I just said that we should come to worship the Lord with reverence and an honor. But in practice, in practice, the tone of the worship service is casual and, and chatty. The preaching does not really call for obedience. And prayers are flippantly offered to the Lord. And it actually creates a church culture which is unreflective of God's holiness. Now the question I'm asking today is how can we at Church of the Vine promote a culture in our church which does not belittle God, but elevates God for who he is? That's my main question. How do we promote a culture that does not anthropomorphize God, but actually exalts Him as majestic and glorious. Now, side note, as I'm preaching this, I do not mean to imply by my tone or my words that we are some church that has it all together. We don't. Nor do I mean to imply that other churches are bad out there and, and we're the only ones that have kind of know what's going on. That's not true at all. There are many, many healthy and good churches that we should look up to. So, don't, don't ever, ever think I'm up here trying to, to communicate indirectly that our church is something we're not. We have a long way to go in our church. But by God's grace... We are, we're doing what's required of us, and I think the Lord has given us, given us grace and has built us up and continues to build us up. But I just want you to know that I'm not up here bashing other churches. Okay, with that being said, how can we promote a church culture which is not belittle, but exalts God? Number one, we can do it by making sure that when we come to church, we come with a heart posture of reverence for God. Look with me in verse 1. <clears throat> the preacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Um, the house of God is the temple, and that's where the priest would give instruction and the word and where sacrifices would be offered to God. The command to guard your steps means approach the temple 
when you go to the worship when you go to worship God, approach the temple with the word guard means with caution or humility. Because you're approaching the very presence of God. Ecclesi then he talks about he warns against the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools would be an unreflective hasty approach to worship that doesn't actually acknowledge the God that we're coming to worship. And I think perhaps all of us here have been guilty of that. Life's tough. And you have to get the kids out of the house. You have to get dressed yourself and, and prepare yourself. And so often... I think the danger is that <clears throat> we come to the service unreflectively and our hearts unprepared to worship. Ecclesiastes says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Be thoughtful and reflective. Acknowledge God for who he is and don't offer the sacrifice of unreflective and hasty approaches to the worship service. Ian Proven, a commentator on Ecclesiastes, says, The sacrifice of fools is thus careless observance of religion, unattached to any genuinely Godward movement of the soul, and enacted out of custom, peer pressure, or habit. I like that phrase, a Godward movement of the soul. That, that should be, that's what the service is for, but we, are, we should also, according to the preacher, prepare ourselves for that Godward movement of the soul. The, the danger, having just said that I'm not up here dragging other churches in the mud, the danger, however, is that many, much leadership facilitates an unreflective and unhealthy way of approaching the service. I've seen examples of pastors spraying congregations with water guns, pastors dressing up like Super Mario. Lydia showed me a, a, an image of a pastor dressing up like a Ken doll. And it, it's, it's funny, but it also makes the church look goofy. Right? This is just a goofy church. It, this is... It, it's cartoonish, it's a caricature of what should be going on in a worship service. There is, there is a war on reverence today. It, and it's almost like reverence is, it seems to be... No, you know what? Casualness is the new legalism. Like, if you're not casual... Then, then you're kind of missing something. Whereas thousands of years ago, if, if, you weren't, if you weren't strictly abiding by every standard to gain God's favor, then you're missing the heart of religion. Here, in our culture, it's casualness that seems to be the legalism. We have a casual tone in our culture, and I think that spills over into the church in unhealthy ways. That actually affects the way we view God 
I, I heard that the Senate changed their dress code to allow hoodies. Maybe I think that might have been overturned. But you see, this is this is just an example of the fact that our culture has a casual tone to it that is almost insisted upon in every avenue of life. And so I think casualness in our churches, I don't care what we dress in, like in this church, that's not my point. My point is in the attitude. And when churches seek to match the culture's nonchalantness, it communicates to people that walk in the door that nothing, nothing new is happening here. It communicates that nothing unique is happening here. There is no loftiness. There is no majestic and awful and holy God. This is just what I see everywhere. Goofy casualness. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not advocating for stiff kind of, the stiff kind of reverence that you might think of when you hear the word reverence. I'm advocating to cultivate a posture of the heart that comes to truly worship the living God and hear from his word. So when one of the things we do in this church, and if you come early, you're welcome to join us. We just did it this morning. We pray before the service. We gather in a circle, and a few of us pray before the service. We pray for the preaching of the word. We pray for worship, the worship. We pray for the fellowship of the saints during the, the greeting times and afterwards. And we pray that God would be glorified and prepares our hearts to worship. And I think that's a good thing. If you want to come early and join that, and maybe we could extend that and make it something even more, that would be a good thing. The call to worship. When, when I come and I read a psalm, it is actually a call to worship the living God. I think it's good we have a, a culture in our church where the children stand for worship. And the men sing with loud and strong voices. Let's continue that. It does not glorify God to, to stand there without participating in the worship service. So men sing out loud with strong and glad voices. With the women, children stand. Respond to the call of worship with joy and reverence. Let's pray before the service. Prepare our own hearts to worship the living God. That's one way we can cultivate an atmosphere of reverence for God is to come with a posture, heart posture prepared to worship Him. Secondly, we can create this culture by attentiveness to hear God's word and do His will. Koheleth, the preacher, says to draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. To draw near to listen. Now, the preacher is saying this in a context, again, of the temple. But the temple is where the law was read by the priests. And it was taught by the priests. So the preacher is saying, a listener 
to God, someone who draw near, draws near to listen, is someone that not only comes to hear the word, but seeks to obey and actually make it a part of his heart and soul, as if God is actually speaking through his word to you and to me. Psalm 40, verse 6. If you have your Bible, turn there. I encourage you to turn there. It's not just the hearing of the word. It's the hearing attended with the intention to obey it and make it a part of one's heart and soul and life. The psalmist says, In sacrifice and offering you did not delight. You have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So it's... And we see this. Jesus says this. The prophets say this. This is consistent throughout the scripture. God doesn't need our sacrifices. He wants our heart. He doesn't want... Um, he doesn't want us to just throw a praise at him because that's what we're doing here. He wants a praise from the heart. And so the, the psalmist says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. You have given me an open ear. Actually, the Hebrew says, You have dug for us an open ear. So God has dug it in our skulls openings to hear his word so that his word can actually penetrate into us and affect our mind and our heart. That's the image we're supposed to get from that psalm. The word is to affect the inner man, not just the outer man. God has dug for us an open ear. So this, I think, is, the, this is why I think it's important that preachers and me and anyone else who gets up here um, is never shy about preaching for obedience in the Christian life. I've seen a problem in many churches and in much preaching where the cross is preached in such a way that it forgives and it justifies, but it makes no demand on your life. And so <clears throat> we preach the cross of forgiveness that through Jesus' death, our sins are forgiven, and that is true, and that is to be gloried in. But to only preach forgiveness and to not preach holiness is to preach half a cross. Because Christ did not just buy your forgiveness with his blood. He purchased your obedience with his blood as well. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. I don't think that verse is balanced with other ways of preaching about the cross. This kind of theme is very often left out in much preaching. That Christ bore our sins on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, grace does not just do something for you. It, do some, it does something with you. 
Titus 2, I think 11 and 12 says, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, if God has dug for us an open ear, if it's better to listen than to offer the sacrifice of fools, and if the cross has purchased our forgiveness and obedience, then it's important to allow the word to have an effect on us that leads us to a more holy, Christ-like life. So, that's another way we can promote a culture of reverence in our congregation that we come not just to listen, but to listen in order to obey. Next, and this is close to the first point, we can also promote a culture of reverence for God by, by approaching God as transcendent and holy. So there's a way to approach God that does not actually correspond to his majesty. He talks about the sacrifice of fools. Verse 2, he says, Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter, utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So the preacher is talking about a, a, a hurried, careless, unfearful tone in our hearts that doesn't actually correspond to the nature of the holy, majestic God that he is. I mean, in ancient times, you would have to, if you wanted to approach a king, you would have to request the audience of the king, dress appropriately, come in with with decorum and formality, but we've been given open access to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We dare not confuse access to God with the permission to treat Him like He was one of us. He is not like us. When we were praying this morning, Matilda prayed and thanked God that He is not like us. He is totally other. He is totally awesome. So why? Why? Because God is in heaven. That's why you should approach God with an acknowledgement of his transcendence. Because he is actually above us. He soars above us. And we should offer devotion that is appropriate to his majesty. Here's what the author of Hebrews says, verse, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. <clears throat> How should we worship as God's new covenant people? You might think, all right, well, this is the Old Testament. What about the new, what does the New Testament say for God's new covenant people? Here's what it says. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
For our God is a consuming fire. Now, do we see that kind of worship in our churches? Worshiping a God who is a consuming fire and approaching him with reverence and awe. This is why I love that we sing songs about God's greatness in this church. We sing about the holiness of God. Then we sing, come praise and glorify our God. I love the image of the line in, in the first song we sang, of all praise to him. All praise to him, the God of light, who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who made the stars, that sings his fame in skies afar. All praise to him, who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. Yes, God bends to hear our every prayer. That kind of worship, I believe, is far more acceptable than singing lyrics like, you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven down which is one phrase of a popular worship song. It's amazing how worship songs can make worship all about ourselves and how much God is like a bachelor who just needs us so much. So, we want to be a church that comes to sing songs about God's greatness. Don't you want to come and sing about God's greatness and majesty? We want to be a church that loves the scriptures as the word of God. We want to be a church who are devout in our pursuit of godliness. Who seek to die to ourselves and live to him. We want to be a church that approaches God with reverence and awe. So in other words, the kind of church we want to be here, let me put it this way. The kind of church we want to be is a kind of church where an unbeliever can walk in and actually be convicted of their sin. Yet at the same time, sense a loving devotion in our midst. We also want to be the kind of church where Christians grow from infanthood to maturity. Where our mind, our understanding about God's truth is crystallized through preaching and teaching. Our character, we grow in Christ-likeness. And that Christ-likeness is promoted and exemplified in our congregation. Where our love for God and the brotherhood here is manifested in tangible ways through deep relationships and servanthood. But here's also another thing we want to be. We want to be a church where nominal Christians feel very uncomfortable around us. 
Let me repeat that. We want to be a church where nominal Christians feel very uncomfortable around us. Because we want to be a church where nominal Christians, their casualness actually sticks out like a sore thumb in our congregation. Where their carelessness for God's word seems awkward and strange in our midst. We want to be the kind of church where nominal Christianity cannot flourish in our midst. It cannot, it finds no life here. That's what we want. We want to be the kind of church where if someone is lukewarm, they are actually spewed out of the mouth of the church. That's what Christ himself does. So either they come to worship and glorify, or they come to repent and believe, but they do not come, and they cannot remain in a nonchalant lack of appreciation and hunger for God. And that's part of your job as members of the church, speaking to members right now. You can, if I sound like that, that bear, only you can prevent forest fires, only you can prevent nominalism in this church. If that's not just me, right? My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, what you can do is always steer the conversation. If, if you see if you see somebody who only wants to talk about earthly things, steer the conversation toward Godward things. Membership is the way. Um, I think it's, it is a great tool that God has given us to promote a culture where um, nominalism cannot flourish. Membership, we make covenant promises to God and the church. Members believe our statement of faith. Members are encouraged to develop deep relationships. But we want to make sure that we never, ever can be lukewarm in our church. Nominalism cannot flourish here. It would be like if we were a boiling pot of water and you put an ice cube in. We would melt that ice cube. Our congregate, the love, the devotion for God, the Christ likeness in our midst, the grace of God that enables us to do all that actually melts the heart and soul of a nominal Christian. So, we want to approach God as transcendent. Next, we can make sure that we offer prayers of faith and not scatter shots when we pray. He says, let your words be few. Now, why is that? Well, I think a few reasons. Number one... The multiplication of words, sometimes, I, I heard somebody say, 
very often praying seems to be an opaque stream of consciousness. Like we're just thinking what's on our mind. Um, and we were trying to find words to say. And that's, there's, there's a right impulse there and there's a wrong impulse there. Here, here's, here's what I'll say. The multiplication of words could betray a lack of trust in God. And maybe you're just kind of throwing up many words out there and see, hoping something sticks. That's one reason maybe people multiply many words. It's almost to get God's attention, like the prophets of Baal. But prayer is not throwing up many things, hoping something will stick. Prayer is a confident approach to God, knowing that he has supplied all your needs and he promises to do so, and that he holds your days within his hand. Prayer is also, our many words in prayer also could come from a desire to demonstrate one's piety. Jesus condemns the Pharisees and he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So, we must never use prayer to demonstrate our piety towards people watching. Jesus told us to pray in faith and not babble like pagans. Matthew 6, 7-8 And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus is, is explicitly saying not to heap up empty phrases, not to think God will hear you for your many words, but God hears you because He is a God, and He is your Father. And I think prayer should demonstrate a confident trust in God, and should be never used as a demonstration of piety. Now, having said that, there's nothing wrong with trying to think hard as you're praying to think of what is appropriate to pray. Also, there is a kind of prayer with many words that flows from a broken heart. Then that's a good thing too. Desperation for a child dying of cancer, a marriage on the brink of divorce, hor the horrible attacks in Israel. There is a kind of prayer that is attended with many words that actually comes from a heart that is pouring out itself to God. And that is a good and beautiful kind of prayer, though it has many words. So, I, please understand what the preacher and Jesus himself is after is in entering into God's presence, presence that does not come from a heartfelt burden. Right? That's the problem. But maybe a thoughtless approach that kind of manifests itself in just saying a bunch of things.
Then the, the preacher talks about what would we call this flippancy. I would think about flippancy in the way you approach God. Verse 4. When you vow a vow, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So, a vow is when a worshiper makes a promise before God if God will respond in a favorable way. And he says, I will promise to pay you if you do this for me. And this actually was allowed in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Now did Jesus teach us, what did Jesus teach us about vows and oaths? Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. So he, what the preacher is saying in the Old Covenant context is don't make promises to God that you don't really intend to keep. That shows a flippancy in the way you approach God. I think we could apply this to baptism today. Baptism is a, an identification with Jesus Christ. You are promising to die to your sin and live to Christ because in virtue of your union with him. And that's why in this church we're very careful with baptism. The first person I ever baptized seven years ago um, wanted to be baptized, came, came to church kind of out of nowhere, wanted to be baptized, met with, uh, met with her two times, and then I baptized her. And uh, she came to church twice after that and never came back. And it seems that she wanted baptism as some, as some kind of religious, you know, act that she just stamped off. And I learned my lesson that day <clears throat> that baptism is a promise to God. It's an, it is an initiatory right for a believer. And by going under the water, you've died to your old life. By raising up, you're promising to walk in the newness of Christ's life. And so this should be taken seriously and not flippantly. So, that is what I think. Those are some ideas of how we can promote a culture of reverence in our church. The spirit of what I'm saying really can be contained in John 4, 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father wants people to worship Him and He wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not, not to come because of tradition. Not to come with cold hearts unprepared. Not to listen to the preaching without intending to actually integrate it in our lives, not to offer thoughtless prayers, 
not to make promises and deals with God that you don't intend to keep, but actually to worship Him in spirit and in truth, with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because God is a consuming fire. Now, having said that, you, we also know that God is our Father, and He loves us dearly. And we love Him because He first loved us. So as Christians, we never, we, we fear God, but we're not afraid of God, necessarily. We fear God because He is dangerous and awesome. But we acknowledge that He has loved us, He cares for us. And so the worship that we offer to Him is a worship of devotion, love, and joy. Not out of, um, not out of being afraid that we've overstepped some bounds. Now, if you're not a Christian today, um, are you not sure where you stand with Jesus Christ? The God we're talking about, the God I'm talking about, is a God that is holy and awesome. And one of the first things that someone needs to do to properly worship God is to receive His Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior. Because the problem with with you as an unbeliever is that you are separated from God. Sin has separated us from God. And we are told that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news, that's what the word gospel means, it means good news. The good news is that this God who is holy and awesome has actually made a way for us to be reconciled to him. The way he's done that is he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. As a payment for the sins that we've committed. And also to release us from the power of sin that binds us. And the offer is this. If you accept Jesus Christ by repenting and believing, you will be reconciled to God. And his eternal life he will share with you. Repent means to turn. It means a reorientation of your entire life. It does not just mean feel sorry. Repentance acknowledges sin, but it also is an about face and discipleship to Jesus Christ. And believe, believe that God, that the cross did what God said it did in Jesus Christ. And so, this holy and awesome God is also a loving and merciful God who offers you salvation. And so if you have any questions about that, or you're wondering where you stand with the Lord, I'm sure the members here, not just me, I'm sure the members here could explain more about that to you. I would love to talk to you as well. But do not harden your hearts to this message. Because the God who requires reverence and worship also requires you to repent and believe and there is a day coming where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord
So here's the spirit of what I'm saying. I'll end with Isaiah 6. When God... I was talking with Stefan earlier. When God or an angel reveals itself to a man in Scripture, they fall down on their face. They're almost paralyzed with fear. And the angel always has to tell them, don't be afraid. The presence of God or even a messenger from God causes fear in a man or woman's soul who understands who they're approaching. Um, in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, I believe. Listen to, the, listen to how Isaiah talks about the majesty of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, which was a tumultuous time in Israel, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphims, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's a man who acknowledges God for who he is. May we be a church that has the same kind of visions, at least visions that we can handle, that bring us to our knees and draw out from us authentic praise and worship. Let's close in a word of prayer.